generation God gives strength in loving arms Scatters the proud of the nations In the thoughts of their hearts God takes the powerful from their thrones And lifts up the lowly God fills the hungry Get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. The legendary civil rights leader, Representative John Robert Lewis. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm Katherine Young. And I'm David Dykes. And in this episode in our series, Born Black, we're happy to have as our guest, our friend and colleague, Peter Larman. Thank you for being with us, Peter. It's wonderful to be here. For those who have not heard Peter share with us in previous Faith and Reason 360 podcast, I'd like to tell you a little about him. Reverend Peter Larman is a United Church of Christ minister and activist who spent 10 years as executive director of Progressive Christians Uniting in Los Angeles. Previously, he was a high school English teacher, and community organizer in Massachusetts, communications director for the American Federation of Teachers and the United Auto Workers, and the senior minister of New York's historic Judson Memorial Church, where Peter revived a somewhat dormant performing arts program and refocused on the congregation's social justice ministry and worked to defend civil rights liberties after 9-11. Also, Peter has been active in Justice Not Jails campaign that calls upon faith communities to critique and combat the racism that's embedded within the American criminal justice system. Peter is a summa cum laude graduate of both Brown University and Yale Divinity School, And Peter also has written in numerous publications, such as Dissent, In These Times, The American Prospect, and Religion Dispatches. So once again, Peter, uh, thank you for being here. And I always look forward to talking to you, Peter. The same here. Peter, you've written several articles lately in the Religion Dispatch, focusing on the ways in which historical racism colors every aspect of American politics and the American economy. Some will want to say that we make too much out of the issue of racism. Do you find any truth in this idea? It's impossible to make too much of the role of racism in uh, American history, uh, and not just in the history, but in the present, uh, because it its role is decisive. Its role is uh, definitive. Its role is uh, overwhelming in terms of how we structured the economy on the premise that the ideal wage, for example, is zero, right, based on the labor of enslaved people and how that reverberates through the whole system. Um, I could go on, but but no, um, I think the the learning that the country broadly is going through, and we're only part of the way there, 
is precisely the awakening to the absolutely central role of racism or so-called uh, white supremacy in setting the framework for uh, everything that followed. And that goes you know, back to the Spanish Empire. I mean, it predates the English colonists, but, uh, but the, the worst system, the cruelest system of uh, bonded labor was uh, practiced by the English-speaking colonists in the, uh, in the islands and, uh, and here in North America. You know, Peter, it, it seems like there's a great uh, awakening uh, taking place right, right now. As a white person, I, I confess that it has taken all of this current misery and to kind of get my attention and make and bring home to me that this is embedded in our whole history, in our whole culture. And I always knew it was present, but I never began to realize before how it's ingrained in everything we assume and everything we do. What's taken us so long? Well, I think that uh, I think that uh, there's a uh, it's not a conspiracy exactly, but there's a kind of consensus uh, among the white people, and if you think about. Uh, almost immediately after the war between the states in 1877, uh, there was an agreement between the Democratic and Republican Party that a Republican, uh, Rutherford Hayes, would be allowed to be president, provided he withdrew troops from the uh, formerly rebellious uh, states, which automatically was understood uh, to mean that uh, white power would return in those states. And then you know, fast forward to the period um, uh, in the 1890s, the height of the Jim Crow period, right up through the First World War, where all those monuments went up. And they went up monuments to uh, uh, the people who fought on the side of slavery, went up in northern cities as well as southern cities, because this was the era of reconciliation, right, between whites, north and south. And then even up into the New Deal, there was a kind of agreement among the whites that it would be okay for the programs benefiting returning soldiers to be racist uh, so that the white suburbs developed around, uh, you know, so-called black inner cities. So, you know, this has been around for a long, long time, uh, but there was a gentleman's agreement on the part of white people uh, to, you know, not deal with it. You know, Peter, my uh, grandson, we were able to visit with them uh, about two weeks ago, and he looked at David and me, and he's only 10, and he actually said, do you think that, that since this George Floyd person dying, do you think that we're making too much over his death? And uh-huh. he's 10 years old. And we just both looked at him and said, absolutely not. And tried to give him a little window into the history of slavery and racism. And he knew absolutely nothing, which doesn't really surprise me. But uh, he's not being taught or exposed to. And obviously, he's hearing these discussions. Otherwise, he wouldn't know to even bring up the issue or ask the question. You know that somebody said that Mm -hmm. in a setting where where he was present. 
yeah, he absorbed that from uh, exactly as you say, David. Well, this is the problem. See, we don't understand, at least I don't, how deep the um, counter-narrative is. So we talk, we, you know, good progressive people, we talk about the awakening that's going on. We find hope in that, and I do too. But we dare not forget that the uh, other side, if I can put it that way, is highly mobilized to say, I mean, you heard Senator Cotton the other day say slavery was a positive good. Oh, and, you know, basically echoing John C. Calhoun. Can you believe it? No. Can you believe it? Yeah. You know? yeah. um, he didn't quite say it that way. He said it was necessary for the development of the nation's wealth. Well, of course, in that respect, he's telling the truth, only not the way he means it, right? Uh, but there's a lot of that out there. I don't think we have any idea how much there is. And then, of course, the fact that the mainstream media and the school book publishing people want to keep this all neutral. They don't want to interfere with the idea that America is the land of the free and the home of the brave and the noblest and best of all uh, uh, nations anywhere at any time. I mean, there's a huge investment, psychological investment and money investment in keeping that going. So it gives young people like you, like the 10-year-old a kind of cognitive dissonance, right? Because mainly what they've absorbed is this is a wonderful country and uh, yes, there was racism and that was bad, was racism mm-hmm. and that was bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if uh, Catherine or David happened to read an article um, in the Jackson Free Press, Donald Ladd is a good friend of mine and Catherine's and David. And Catherine, did you happen to see the article that uh, Donna wrote uh, f- from her growing up in Neshoba County? Yes. And it was about uh, the Confederate soldier, the statue. In Philadelphia. Yes. And um, I'm not, I don't recall all of the details about it, but. She was uh, very descriptive, and she's an excellent writer, and she talked about she would go past that statue growing up. She never really thought much about it, and now that she's older, she's uh, very vocal about what it represents, how destructive it is, and um, that she is trying to campaign to have it removed but uh, she's been told it will not be removed. In fact, it fell at one point, right, Catherine? I think I read that. And uh, they, they put it back up. They put it back up, mm-hmm. repaired it, and put it back up. Um, anyway, let me ask another question, Peter. Uh, in an, a June article in Religion Dispatches, you identify the problem of the increasing power of the big five tech giants. And although you wrote this article in June, how ironic that just recently, this just this past week, four of the major tech giants appeared before the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee. Tell us how this is significant for our discussion. Uh, well, we were talking about the fact that people, that there's this chaotic uh, media atmosphere uh, and there's immense amounts of disinformation floating around, these uh, tech giants uh, all make their money in part from traffic, and they don't really care what kind of traffic it is. Zuckerberg and uh, Facebook in particular have come under fire for this. 
the other thing, of course, is uh, in this era of COVID and hyper um, uh, hyper awareness of uh, the danger of exposure, it's very obvious that these companies are going to profit, and they're increasingly going to function like public utilities. But as we know, they're not public utilities, so they're not officially accountable to us, the people, right? Mm-hmm. Which All is right. why Congress can call them up there and lecture them, but Congress basically can't do a, a bloody thing about them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they know that, and they know mm-hmm. that. Um, but as you think about the potential for chaos and horror with the forthcoming election and these companies kind of in the middle of it in terms of uh, having to decide what kind of content is allowed to go through their channels, so to speak. Uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, the other thing that we know about the future economy uh, is that we're going to be in far more of a surveillance state, meaning, you know, our activities are going to be monitored far more closely than ever before. That's that's inevitable, right? Uh, absolutely inevitable. And these companies are in the middle of that as well. So uh, whichever member of Congress, in fact, I think it was my representative from Rhode Island, called them emperors, right? Mm. Um, that was in the New York Times. Mm. They are emperors. Think about that. Yeah. And we know, we know uh, empires and our faith don't always... Uh, agree about things but we always seem to be willing to make a compromise with with empire uh, well that's because again that's a longer conversation but we have this conversation all the time uh the what's understood to be authentic christian faith is actually the faith of empire and that's a, a you know again a longer conversation yes it's yeah. fear-based it's fear-based it's based on you know, the same power relations that corrupt the civil state. Mm-hmm. Can I add something to that? If you are talking to Jorg Rieger, Jorg will say, just look at, in the in the empire relationship, where the power is and, and, and what the movement of that power is. It's always from the top down. And of course, Jorg champions... Uh, in empowering people so the power can come from the bottom up. Right. Yeah. Well, except, uh, you know, and I, again, Jorg and I are on the same wavelength in terms of the critique, but where things are going and the consequence of COVID uh, is more consolidation, not less. And yes. uh, these already enormous companies are in prime position to be the big beneficiaries. I mean, I think I look at my own behavior. I mean, I just said I was freaking out because I was offline, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't like to think of myself as dependent on Jeff Bezos in any way, but I am. Right? Yes. It's a kind of sickening thought, as a matter of fact. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And he's far from the worst. He just happens to be making $30 million a week. I don't hold it against him. <laughs> Good Lord. Peter, in the same article from June, you make the point that the new normal, with pain and misery at the bottom and staggering wealth at the top, is really the old normal of this country's uniquely race-based form of capitalism. Help us understand what you mean by this. Well, I think that may be the same piece in which I talk about how... uh, 
how this power developed, this extraordinary power that our corporations have. And by the way, that corporations do not enjoy in other parts of the world. Again, this is the bad kind of American exceptionalism, right, that is related to our our history and our entanglement with slavery and uh, theft. Mm. But uh, uh, I think I say something about how uh, at about the same time that the original Civil Rights Act, that is to say the 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 Civil Rights Act of 1875 uh, was being eviscerated by the Supreme Court. That Supreme Court was saying that the Union Pacific Railway Company, which was, you know, uh, uh, controlling half the land in the West, hugely powerful company, uh, was a private citizen in terms of the law, in terms of its immunities and powers under the law. And that, in a way, is the foundation of giving almost sacred rights to these uh, to these companies. Uh, uh, so today, and this is not discussed very much, but millions of perfectly profitable traditional small companies are being bought up by uh, hedge funds, by private equity operators, who then milk them of their assets, basically force them out of business to strip them of their assets, right? Uh, creating enormous wealth for themselves. That's not taxed even, not taxed at the way wages are taxed, you know, or even normal capital gains. They're basically token taxes. These billionaires, in turn, infiltrate our politics. They pay for the campaigns. And, I do, and you know, we have to be clear, they pay for the campaigns in both parties, in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Yes. Yeah. So this creates, you know, a, what we used to call an oligarchy of these super important, super powerful people and that really is our uh future and it's it's connection to race uh is that this whole system this whole system of take what you can right and leave the rest and ignore degrade people and ignore people and uh and uh operate basically by fraud and force that is all rooted in the especially vicious system of chattel slavery that operated in this country and the fact and the fact that 4 million people were released from slavery with absolutely nothing with no land nothing which was is unheard of and to think that the slaveholders got reparations for their loss of property but not the people who but were not the, the slaves themselves right Right. right, and that set it set in motion everything that we have today. So now, you know, put COVID on top of that, COVID on top of that, and Catherine, I don't have to tell you, the the suffering of Black America is ten times worse, ten times worse than the suffering of other people, and people act shocked and surprised by that. Well, where where have you been? You know, did you not notice that Black families, uh, for the most part, don't have large cash reserves, right? Right. Don't 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 have these you know invested assets. Have not had. Right. Were hurt in the 2000 wake of the 2008 so-called Great Recession. Much worse than white Americans. Right. So already in a weakened position, and then along comes COVID. Yeah, uh, Catherine, do you mind uh, telling us again the story of you and your grandfather? when you first became aware that something wasn't right. Would you share that story when you went to the store with his 
vegetables? So I was sharing uh, when I first experienced in my mind, probably at about five years old, um, how this whole system of racism impacted us. My grandfather um, owned land that he, of course, had bought um, from a share crop in the land prior to and, and finally was able to save enough money to purchase this 100 plus acres of land. And he was farming it. And, and I was fortunate enough um, at that time to tag along with him uh, because I was the youngest. And at that time, I couldn't go to school. Um, so he took his vegetables into the local market in town and where he normally would, you know, sell. This particular day, um, it was more people there, um, more white people that was going in and out of the store and he had to wait um, and he considered in my mind looking back it, it appeared that he considered um, the people at the store more or less friendly and accepting but on this particular day because it was so many uh, other white people in there he was actually asked not to come into the store until they got all the products, what they needed, and, and left out of the store, like um, his skin or, or our skin would touch yes. and and cause some type of friction. And I looked at him with a strange um, look on my face, and I think he was you know, understanding that I knew something was wrong but not really wanting to get into it because, you know, uh, before then we was always taught um, – Never to look white people in the face. Always look nope, down. Nope. And, and, yeah. and don't, you know, get into confrontation. And so um, he proceeded to say, it'll be okay. We just need to sell our vegetables in order to get money so that we could buy the necessary things that we needed. And sure enough, after everything was clear, we was able to do that. But that moment, I understood that I was different or I felt like that I was different and I felt right. less and lower. Um, and it had a huge impact on who I am today. Well, as, as it could not fail to do, as it could not fail to do, I mean, feeling that level of ugliness and knowing that it's deeply wrong, right? And knowing that it's powerful, right? Is horrendous, horrendous. Well, you know, uh, we're not going to get out of our inequality problem in this country unless we look at this square in the face and understand that the inequality uh, and the needless suffering is related to this uh, legacy. Our lack of uh, quality health care, our lack of what countries refer to as public goods, you know, that's because the white people think if we have public goods, the black people will get it. Yeah, and only they never do. Just to, just, yeah. just to put it put it bluntly, right? Yeah. and that's been that's been known for years, right? We provide welfare for very large, very profitable corporations, sub subsidies, welfare all the time. We don't call that welfare because that's you know uh, supporting the powerful, and we have in our twisted religion, we have an idea that the powerful and wealthy deserve to be so. 
because of God's grace, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and so you see the racism is right there in the religion. It's also, you know, the the, the people that love to talk about the great uh, American dream are largely talking about everyone being able to make a profit. So it's all right. about the accumulation of, of wealth. And that is not the great American dream. The great American dream is, is an equal and just society. But, boy, that's not what they mean when they talk about the great American dream and opportunity. It's all about yeah. where's the money, who has it, how can I get more? Right. And, you know, if you, I'm just going to mention his name, not because I have a thoroughgoing understanding of his work, but Thomas Picardy, the Frenchman, who's written yes. about, about uh, American capitalism. Uh, he's part of a huge worldwide think tank that is looking at societies all over the world where inequality has reached such mountainous heights. And he's saying that, that unless uh, the U.S. is able to reform its use of, of, of the capitalistic system, uh, that, the, that the democracy will be destroyed. So, well, yeah. And I think, I think we're right at that point uh, now, and I hate to be so glum, but I think we're right at that point. I mean, I, uh, many things keep me up at night. Uh, obviously, the pandemic and the terrible toll of suffering, the economic uh, uh, collapse, uh, climate change, mm-hmm. but supreme now among the things that keeps me up at night is the fact that uh, the democracy itself could really falter. And that's why I thought the speakers at the John Lewis funeral yesterday in Atlanta were so good mm. to talk about voting rights because if man gave his all for voting rights and again shame on us if we don't fight to preserve the, the basic franchise with a madman you know a would-be king threatening to take yeah. it away yeah i want to tie into the citizens united which we were talking about a little bit earlier in these corporations how much power and control that they have over our lives and this also um it's not very obvious But yesterday, Catherine and I um, were fortunate to have a conversation with Dr. Stephen Farrow, who is executive director of the Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute in Mississippi, which is located uh, on the Gulf Coast. And one of the things that I was struck by that I really had never been uh, aware of, hadn't paid that much attention to it, but especially, Catherine, I want you to also share what you said, um, these fast food industries, which are major corporations, so again, I don't see how you can uh, call um, a citizen out of arches. Uh, I don't understand where the heartbeat is by (laughs) labeling them these corporations as citizens. But nevertheless, um, I was made aware of, and Catherine reinforced it, that uh, these minority neighborhoods are targeted by these corporations so that, Catherine, why don't you share what you were talking about and about the expense and women working two or three jobs and uh, having to get dinner for their families as opposed to buying fresh vegetables and fruit. So I was sharing that I was, uh, I'm in a Ph.D. program in public health, 
And one of the projects that I were that I was undergoing was to write a paper. Uh, actually, it was on ob- obesity and diabetes. And when I began to do some of the research, I found that in a lot of our African American communities, that um, because policies are are loud, that we had a lot of food giants that were being allowed to move into these areas where for African-Americans it's cheaper and because of the wage and the income gap to purchase a, you know, off the dollar menu for dinner versus buying fresh fruits and vegetables. And then we have food deserts that are, you know, in the African-American communities. And this has had a huge impact. And I think a a lot of times we, you know, misquote that um, looking at African-Americans, we are the ones that are so overweight and and what are the real issues and problems that surround it is that, again, it's structural racism where this has been allowed and there is the alternative for these individuals is if you're a low-wage individual and you're a single mom working two jobs, um, there is no way to prepare a healthy meal for that individual or your children, right. neither nor yourself. And we have systematically allowed this for years and years, and and now we have we have this big problem with diabetes and obesity. But what are the real problems that are underlining. It's not that individuals just want to eat bad and, and and they're overweight just because, but we have some things that are in place that contributes to this and that's allowing our policies, allowing um, food giants to come in and place there and make wealth off of the poor. That's right. Sure. We love to do well, that. You just, you just uh, Catherine, you just put your finger on the essence of racism So the racism is the assumption made by middle-class white people and a lot of preachers that, well, this is a problem of uh, lack of focus in the black community, right? This is a problem of, uh, you know, sort of lack of uh, self-discipline, right, Uh, and just making good choices. They like to talk about choices. They don't see how the system foists this on the people at all, and also the racist assumption, uh, this is the essence of it, is that black people wouldn't choose to do the right thing. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. If given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it makes my blood boil. Yeah. It makes my blood boil. But you do hear this kind of talk, yep. and you hear a lot of it among so-called Christians, you know, middle-class morality, right? Well, people should uh, eat fresh foods and vegetables. Yeah, well, you try it under these mm-hmm. circumstances. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm... Uh, it's it's the same game we've been playing for for uh, millennia, if I may. Everybody's going to groan when I bring up the Roman Empire again. But the but the examples of building the society and the culture on the backs of slaves and and other and the other poor and dispossessed. Uh, you know how many millennia. Do we need to repeat the same? And we're getting in trouble in the same way that the Romans got in trouble. Uh, so it's just, you know, and in the whole New Testament biblical story, uh, it's plain as day that that the Romans sucked up every tiny bit of wealth 
and currency uh, so that poor people were punished for being poor. And it's, it's the same economy today and with not much difference. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the economists use this fancy language. They talk about the commodification of labor. In other words, turning people into things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, again, think about how the thing orientation, and Dr. King certainly talked about this, how the thing orientation in U.S. culture was uh, rooted. It was rooted in the idea, this word that was used in the 19th century uh, about hands. You know, it continued in the 20th and 21st century. So how many hands do we need? Mm-hmm. Listen to the language, right? It's the hands, and that comes from big... That comes from picking cotton in Mississippi, yep. where they measured how fast those hands could move. That's right. And they whipped people bloody if they didn't move fast enough, right? And they had whole systems of bookkeeping about this so that the productivity of enslaved human beings outstripped the productivity of the invention of better uh, you know, uh, cotton textile plants uh, over the years. Uh, hard to believe, but this was all at the point of the lash. So treating people and treating labor with so much contempt, and this includes white labor, of course, is rooted in this deep past of ours that we simply can't get over until we face it. Yeah, you know, you wish you could wake up working white people to, to the recognition that the oppression that oppresses black people also oppresses them so that working people are held in, you know, blue collar or whatever, are held in kind of contempt, uh, you know, even in our own accepted white society. So it's a really, right. it's right. a really screwed up perception of, of life and, and what's important. Uh, I want to refer to uh, something you said in one of your articles. Just the phrase, um, American slavery was the crucible of everything we think of as modern. And then a little later in the same paragraph, the system of organized cruelty was highly efficient. So, So the cruelty that we would normally turn away from uh, if it was on the screen in a movie or whatever... You know, we despise the people who inflict the cruelty, and yet we live with, uh, all of us, we, we live with systemic cruelty even today that uh, we don't want people to have health care. We don't want them to be educated. Uh, we sure as hell don't want them to have their own agency for accessing society and politics. Yeah, and we we incarcerate people whom we find uh, useless to us. So we incarcerate people at a rate that's 25 times the rate of the other industrial countries. Um, uh, And we incarcerate mentally ill people. So how cruel is that, right? We uh, inflict people with these subprime loans, you know, the payday Mm -hmm. lending Mm -hmm. uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And think about the cruelty of that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The dishonesty and cruelty of it. We don't have universal child care in this country because, God forbid, you know, uh, we should in any way reduce the power of the patriarchy or make women suffer less or or fail to take advantage of underpaid African-American labor in childcare, right? Um, 
on, on down the list, right? Our, our dysfunction as a society. And David, you put your finger on it. White people suffer, but they don't know what's, what's ailing them. And they go off and vote for Trump. Right. right. Uh, exactly. That's the, that's the heartbreaking because, part. Of it. Because is, of his anger matches their own and his resentments right. match theirs, they assume he's their friend. And right. they could not have a greater enemy than this guy. So, yeah. Yeah, but, see, but the irrationality prevails because the whole system is, is uh, forever shrouded in mystery and all that mystery or mystification, as Mr. Marx would say, all of that has to do with manipulation of race and the category of race. Peter, um, imagine if you have, if you were on a national stage and in your address you make this statement, actually taken from one of your articles. For 400 years, the vast majority of African Americans have been kept down at the very bottom in order for the American system of cheap labor to function. And you go on to say the American system depends on maintaining black misery so that white workers can feel slightly less miserable while the real wealth flows upward. And we understand and we see through a, a lot of research that the the wage and income gap is so far apart from even white, black, even female, male. What do you imagine would be the public reaction to your statement? I would think that stones would be coming directly at my white head because <laughs> my my big, bald head. Uh, I, I, no, no, no doubt because... Uh, that's see i'm living in this frame this kind of framing all the time but most people are not living in that and they don't uh quite see i mean how many everyday uh, white people are going to say of course i experience a psychic wage from whiteness you see the problem with the way whiteness works is that it it allows people to conceal it, even though it's plain as day, right? Uh, uh, so yeah, people would go nuts and, and th- uh, throw stones at me a little bit. I, uh, I mean, I would, if given the time and allowed to breathe a little bit longer, I would try to explain that. But that you know, there's a lot packed into just a few sharp uh, statements. Um, I do think people need to, you know look at the basic facts i mean you could gauge if you look at the minimum wage in the states uh how low it is mm-hmm. go to the states with the most african-american wage workers mm-hmm. and that's where it's going to be the lowest yes. right uh so yeah. you know uh, there is a connection but it, it doesn't automatically uh seem that way to people uh, look there's a huge the huge psychic investment in denying that it was ever this bad, you yes. know, and that's yes. really the challenge for public education, right? Mm-hmm. It's yep. not um, can you name the battles of the Civil War; it's who actually won the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. We that, had an experience. That's, that's the challenge. Yes, we had an experience uh, soon after we came to live in Jackson. The film "The Help" came out, and uh, oh yes, yeah. Oh, yes. In fact, we live about. Right now, we're about 200 yards from the theater that was featured in that film. And uh, people, not all, but 
uh, friends of ours who live here say, oh, it's not like that anymore, you know. When, it, when in actuality, in fact, we had some friends that had been living in Chicago and moved to Florida who was just so excited and wanted to share with David and me and ask our opinions on what we thought about the film. And I had to just stop watching it after a while and left because it isn't true in that it happened a long time ago, which was the perception that the film provided for the viewers. Actually, it happens to this very day, right, Catherine? Yes, I would think so. And I, and I would also go on to say that I think that um, we see it in different ways. It's presenting itself in different ways, but in actuality, it is the same as what you see in the help. But now you, you might not see, you know, people in the homes cleaning up as much as you did before, but the the action of the racism is ever more present now, even as it was then. We just see it in much different ways in our everyday lives now, in, in wages, in health care, um, in other matters and means. And I think sometimes, you know, I'm optimistic about the path in which we're going, but I still see today how the undercover racism is still um, running rapid and the sheets are trying to be pulled off of it, but it's still here. And, and it's, it's still as powerful as it ever it, was. Yes, it yes. is. Well, you just look at the polls, right, uh, in terms of uh what the white people are willing to support and what they won't support in terms of reforming policing and incarceration. Uh, there are very clear limits uh, in the minds of uh, white folks. But worse than that is, you know, uh, white people want to live in a so-called post-racial world. That works for them. And so they love the fact that they can point to Oprah or yeah. the Obamas, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and say, come on. You know, we look at these people uh, and, you know, that just helps to keep the blinders on. Do you know what I mean? It's the uh, people love the the simulacrum of thinking that uh, this horribleness is past and that really, you know, uh, everything hinges on this idea of self-sufficiency. Everybody should just be able to. Uh, uh, get up and run the race, and everybody's got an equal start, and that's an absurd. That's an absurdity. I mean, it's an absurdity. It's uh, even 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 the even the reality of, and we have to think about this in the election context. Even the reality of continuing disenfranchisement of African Americans. You know, it's scandalous. It's scandalous that uh, that this is an issue in dispute all over. I mean, not just the state of Georgia, but all, all through the South and elsewhere in Wisconsin, my home state, right, where black people are being disenfranchised by the hundreds of thousands. And don't tell me that this is, uh, this is you know, all in the interest of, you know, neutral, uh, race-blind justice. It's not. It's a plot. Well, and in uh, yesterday's um, service for Representative John Lewis, 
uh, Obama delivered the eulogy, and he pointed out that, uh, speaking of disenfranchisement, we're we're looking now at limitations on voting. We're looking at uh, reducing the number of uh, polling uh, places in order for people to be able to vote. We're looking at uh, conspiracy theories on the postal system, um, and these are targeting primarily to primarily our our um, minority populations. They're the ones that, that get hit most. Yeah, you know, uh, we're sort of in a. I guess what we're doing today is to trying to take as as clear and clean a look at what the realities are as we can, and, and hopefully in ways we've never seen before. Uh, at the same time, this this problem of racism and its relationship to poverty, uh, Peter, make, make some statements about this whole issue of, of, uh, of corporations being citizens. What, what, how does that play out in terms of this radical racism? Um, well, it's, it's uh, first of all, uh, uh, granting corporate citizenship uh, means that, you know, because ostensibly citizens have free speech, that corporations have free speech and can spend any amount to express their point of view. They don't even have to express their point of view secretly over a three martini lunch with congressmen that they own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if you control the public policy apparatus through your, you know, your wealth and, and political power, uh, then, of course, you can control the agencies that regulate you. You can capture those agencies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And you can violate health and safety and labor laws and all those kinds of things. Basically, do what you want. Well, who will bear the brunt of that? Of course, it will be uh, workers and uh, consumers, the people who are not corporate citizens who don't have that wealth, power, and uh, and prestige. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I said earlier that it's no coincidence that uh, African Americans cease to become citizens and the gutting of the Civil Rights Act, their first Civil Rights Act in 1883, at the same time that the same Supreme Court said the Union Pacific Railroad and, of course, Carnegie and Rockefeller and all them could be citizens. Uh, so that was a huge turning point, and that, you know, it in my way of thinking, it turned the 14th Amendment, which was for recently freed, uh, uh, formerly enslaved people, that was that's the people it was for, it turned that on its head, right, mm-hmm. and turned yes. it into an instrument instrument of oppression. Mm-hmm. We seem to be able to translate most anything into institutions of oppression. You know, one of the things that strikes me is the U.S. Congress seems a whole lot more concerned about corporate uh, rights than it does about person rights, and that's that's where all all the energy seems to be, and that's why everything gets gets twisted and tweaked into making it an issue of patriotism. Don't you understand that without the corporations, we could not exist? Well, that's questionable. Well, I mean, no, but we are, we are supposed to be appropriately reverent 
I think that's the case. We're certainly supposed to be reverent when the heads of these corporations, including, by the way, the the vampires, you know, who run these mm-hmm. hedge funds and private equity places, when they give $150 million to Yale University, for example, mm-hmm. we're supposed to, you know, salam when we see their name in granite over the place. At least the, you know, old-time uh, uh, money powers had some discretion and would give... Uh, at least some of their stuff anonymously and didn't ask to have every little thing named after them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, but this is the world we, this is the world we inhabit and it's, you know, it, it grows worse. So I think you were talking, David, a little bit about Mitch McConnell saying, uh, I won't, I will not allow people to keep getting their $600 and I will not allow money for schools and I will not allow money for testing and tracking, um, unless, I get a firm provision for corporate liability relief in the in the new bill. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because that's really what's what's Precisely. hanging it up. Yeah, he's he's you know, and it's almost as bad as Trump saying, "Unless I get a new FBI building across the street from my hotel, I won't support this bill." In other words, it's this naked self-dealing on the part of all of them. Mm-hmm. And McConnell, you know, McConnell wants to think he's a statesperson. Well, no, he's a he's a, a shill. He's a shill for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. Peter, you talked about necropolitics, which is a term that I'm adding to my vocabulary as of today. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about uh, necropolitics and, and your interest in it, and how does it relate to the present-day black experience? Um, a few years ago, I think in 2000 maybe 2013, um, a uh, wonderful scholar, uh, Francophile scholar named Akile Mbembe uh, came up with this term necropolitics. And what he means is the capacity of the powerful to inflict the kind of um, status between life and death on a vast uh, group of people and deprive them or try to deprive them of their uh, agency in the interest of, again, preserving uh, uh, power and uh, wealth. And of course, the, the prime example of this is the institution of slavery itself as necropolitics. But having vast numbers of people incarcerated who don't need to be incarcerated, um, having people uh, at the bottom of the economy living in constant debt and anxiety mm-hmm. is a form of necropolitics. Yes. Necro refers to death, right? So right. Uh, the term necrology is uh, Latin for an obituary, or people talk about necromancy, which means trying to communicate with the dead. So necro just refers to uh, to death. So necropolitics, the politics of death. And I try to say that religion has a lot, a lot to do with this because embedded within our uh, form of Christianity in the United States, um, there is a the figure of Moloch from the Bible is the is the is the uh, god of child, child sacrifice in the Old Testament, as we call it. Um, there's an element of Moloch that gets uh, uh, kind of woven in to the idea of God that we inherit. Um, who's an angry God, you know, who does not tolerate evil, and who, in fact, tolerates death and kills a lot of people, right? Kills a lot of people. 
uh, will get in the way of God's righteous, you know, ends. Uh, so I don't think we we're accustomed to think about how much of that kind of image of what God is, who God is, gets wrapped up into us. But yep. in our country, the, the just the sheer sadism, say, of of saying, well, you know, and by the way, these are all high paid, very safe, rich people parading around Washington say, well, we can't get an agreement on a new relief package, so we'll just go home. We'll just we just won't do anything. Exactly. Think about that. Yes. That's that's necropolitics to the you know, to the nth degree. Because they're saying, well, a lot of people are going to die, but, you know, they're just people. Not only and, die uh, from COVID, but they're going to die. Uh, they're going to be out on the streets. They're going right, to be. Right. Uh, uh, die from diabetes, die from uh, obesity, right. die from. Yeah. So so we have a stake in this uh, in as, as people of faith. We have a stake in this in terms of understanding that it's real. And, and of course, it's getting worse because. Uh, we haven't talked about climate change. We don't want to wander too much. But behind all of these immediate catastrophes is the looming catastrophe of climate change, which, again, uh, will take the form of, of uh, horrendously racist differential suffering. Because who's, you know, right as we speak today, as we record this podcast, one-fourth of Bangladesh is underwater, one-fourth of the whole country, Right. And this is our future. Right? There's going to be allegedly within within 30 years there will be 30 million climate refugees, starving people trying to get into the United States. So all of our chaos and confusion are just going to multiply, uh, and that's necropolitics: who will live and who will die. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, if you keep if you keep people on that walking that high wire between life and death. In other words, everything, in order for them to scratch out survival, they have to take, in a, in a way, what's given to them and, and cobble all that together so they can keep their families alive. So, of course. And, how to say this, when you keep them walking on that high wire, they don't have time to form unions. They don't have time to to uh, negotiate uh, uh, collectively. So you just keep them totally powerless uh, and let things chug along. So, right. uh, so yeah, and, 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 you know, I've, I've been talking about uh, the necropolitics of the Western world, but I think that uh, Akile Mbembe would, would say, okay, so it's also with a million Uyghur people in concentration camps in China, you know, it takes it takes that form too. The mm-hmm. problem is that uh, these large empires, the Chinese and us, for example, we look at each other and say, "No, you're worse. No, you're worse." And then each of us takes that as liberty, to, you know, to do more. What about children in cages without access to their children? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it it's kind of spirals, and it's not spiraling in the right direction. I often think about the fact that. Uh, it's now been 20 years since the end of the 20th century, and everybody said, well, the 20th century was a uh, century of immense horror, bloodshed, and suffering. It's never going to be that bad again. Right? Now we have the United Nations. We have all these institutions. We have democratic structures. Who could have seen this coming, right? And right. so right. we didn't ask for this. You know, I, I saw my friend James Lawson preaching at the 
Lewis' funeral, and he was talking about what's our calling. I think really that's what sticks with me in my prayer life every day. What's our calling now? Because these are not ordinary times, and uh, you know, uh, with evil as as rampant as this, even us people who are really old have got to step up. Mm-hmm. Step up and... I'm, re- I'm referring to myself, not to you, and not to anybody else. Well, step up and be and understand the full nature of, of what citizenship means. So, you know, knowledge is power. If we know the pathways through which these people could sabotage the election, let's anticipate them and let's talk about them all the time and let's put structures in place. Even, you know, in some poor neighborhoods of color, you know perfectly well they're going to try to shut down the polling places. You know they're going to do it. And they're going to say, well, it's because of COVID or it's because of civil unrest. And, you know, tell the people of Milwaukee, well, you can vote Madison, right? Uh, We need to have cars, if need be, to drive people to Madison. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. it yeah. does. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I hate, you know, I'm a lazy person. I hate to think that, you know, I might be driving one of those cars, but, but you know, it's my job. Mine too. Right. Biblical tradition describes two very different gods, which you talk about in one of your articles, a jealous god who orders the complete extermination of the Amalekites, women and children included, and a God of boundless loving kindness who desires mercy, not sacrifice. How have white American Christians exploited both of these ideas about God? Because in a lot of the things that, that we see and hear, um, they use, uh, or politicians use God as a means to justify their actions. Well, you know, we've had, uh, and, uh, uh, the Faith and Reason Project and the Dykes Foundation over the years have done a lot of work on this. Uh, we know that over, say, 50 years, uh, white American Christianity has been sort of further degraded apart from the original you know, racist uh, kind of uh, uh, framework uh, of earlier centuries was further degraded uh, by this idea that God prospers people individually, right? That it's a transactional kind of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this again, how can I say this? This It's, it's sacrilege. It, it diminishes the mystery and majesty of God, if you think about it, to think of, of a God who would be that transactional, right? Uh, and uh, give me this and give me that. Um, uh, as far as uh, death in, is concerned, I, you know, I think the the greater problem there is if you've already got to the point where you think of some human beings as less than, then you can easily uh, find a way to make your God also think of some people as less than, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. even uh, as deserving of death. It's this idea that we have, it's an embedded idea of limited grace and that God could, uh, in fact, elect some people to eternal damnation. Uh, you know, I, I, 
if I'm in a room with people who believe that, who believe in, in that so-called double predestination, I can only be patient and loving and slowly try to draw out for them and with them how that utterly contradicts the idea that God is supremely loving, right? You can't have it both ways. You can't have a God who consigns people to damnation on, on account of no fault of their own forever and a God who calls us by name, right? Who knows our names, who calls us by name, who, who, who assures us that there's a place for us uh, in the everlasting kingdom. Those ideas are so contradictory, they can't be held together. But I think, again, uh, uh, religion per se is a human construction. It's a human creation. And we humans have a responsibility uh, to take it seriously enough not to allow these cockamamie ideas to, uh, to prevail and to mess up, their, mess up our heads and mess up our institutions. That's an awful long answer. I'm sorry. I liked it. No, it was excellent, excellent. I know we're getting uh, close to one hour, and so, Peter, we're going to begin to bring this to a close. I want to ask Catherine and David if they have any other comments they'd like to make. And then, Peter, I'd like for you to think about uh, final comments that you could leave with all of us. David? Boy, uh, well, I, you know, I, I said earlier in a, uh, sitting here, my uh, awareness growing, even as we speak. Uh, I get, I spend so much of my energy in anger and outrage. Uh, I wish I could channel that same energy in something that will make a difference. And uh, it's why I'm concerned so much, as all of us are, about voting and the opportunity for people to vote. And those people, to me, it is evil, sheer evil. Nothing is more evil than denying people in a democracy their vote. That's stealing from them. And I wish we could... I wish we could appeal to more and more people to this time don't stay home get out there and make a political decision that makes it at all more and more possible for justice and equality we've been talking a lot about uh, representative lewis and shortly before he died he wrote an essay for the new york times and asked that it be published on the day of his funeral. Mm -hmm. In the piece published Thursday, Lewis recalled the teaching of Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, we are all complicit when we tolerate injustice. He said it is not enough to say it will get better by and by. He said each of us has a moral obligation to stand up, speak up, and speak out. Though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe, Lewis added. In my life, I have done all I can do to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love, and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. 
Mm. I want to pause just a moment. I um, I did watch Representative John Lewis's service yesterday, and those words, Catherine, the words of John Lewis, will forever live in my heart, and I hope they stay with me with each waking moment of every day. Um, Peter? Well, I'm thinking of uh, of Congressman Lewis, but also uh, of Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was likewise uh, beaten up multiple times, uh, but who held high the banner of nonviolence, right? The, the, the incredible value and power of revolutionary nonviolence with the emphasis on the revolutionary. I mean, I think that what gives me some hope, despite all of our gloom today, is uh, God has ways and means that we may not know about. God may well be operating, I think God is operating, uh, uh, perhaps outside of our recognized religious institutions, certainly quickening the hearts and spirits of the young people who um, who are fearless, uh, who feel they have nothing to lose, right? Who can see very clearly how completely corrupt the system we've created is, how unjust it is, and um, and who will and who, uh, in honor of those slaughtered, right? Yeah. Uh, in recent months, but those slaughtered through the generations are simply not going to accept. Uh, a new normal that simply uh, encapsulates all of the evil we've been talking about today. So that su- suggests to me that uh, that history is not over, that the cause of justice and decency is not over, um, and we will. These will be the times that test our souls and test our spirits. But we can make it. We can make it. And God is possibly working through each of us, even today. Peter, you know how happy and hopeful you make me when I talk with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us today. I look forward to us having you back again. Well, this was precious to me as well. So uh, I, I bless you and bless us all on our path. Thank you. And if you, if our listening audience is interested in reading these articles for themselves, uh, please visit religiondispatches.org. Religiondispatches.org. David and Catherine, again, thank you for another informative podcast in our series, Born Black. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason seminars and educational programming. Additional funding provided by the Wendland Cook Foundation. For home study materials designed to broaden one's awareness, please visit our website at faithandreason.org.